This is episode number 411 with Marco Zappacosta of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is Marco, who's the co-founder and CEO of Thumbtack, a technology leader building a platform helping customers find and hire skilled professionals. We're going to really hear how Marco started Thumbtack right out of college, and today they're raising over $500 million in capital. He's also been recognized on the Forbes 30 under 30 list, and he's going to tell us how he's building his empire. Please welcome to the Founder Podcast, Marco Zappacosta. Well, uh, really excited to speak with you today, Marco. The first question we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Well, I, I think the uh, specific answer would be that uh, I invented my job, uh, but I think the, the sort of uh, reality was that there was no one else uh, willing to do it or up for trying, and so I sort of just jumped in first. But I, uh, I ultimately got started uh, Thumbtack straight out of college, uh, so this is the first job, true job, besides sort of a summer job, summer internship than I'd ever had. Yeah, there you go. So can you talk us, uh, how did you start Thumbtack? This is your first business. Yeah, tell us how that came to light. Yeah. So um, I didn't actually set up to, to be an entrepreneur. Um, I sort of came to the realization or appreciation for it um, in college, uh, working with a couple other guys and starting a student advocacy group. And we never thought of it as a startup. Um, we were just passionate about this project. And so we were running after that. And, you know, once we did that, and saw how much fun it was to build something out of nothing and sort of rally people around sort of a shared dream, uh, we decided that we wanted to do it again and had to do it again. And that's where we sort of turned our attention to sort of, you know, building something for consumers, you know, uh, uh, you know, really a sort of a tech-driven sort of product that we could build and ultimately 
yeah, uh, serve customers with. And we spent time sort of thinking about how best to do that. And, you know, all of this, like the last 10 plus years of work uh, came out of a, you know, kind of banal observation that it's, you know, why is it still so damn hard to hire a plumber? And that was something that, uh, you know, really caught our attention because it seems so like silly that this was still a problem uh, in, you know, the 21st century. And yet the more we dug into it, it wasn't just about home pros or service pros. It was really fundamental and that it was a broken industry. Um, and so we didn't know how, uh, we didn't know in what way we would sort of fix it. But from those sort of early conversations, we set out to create a solution uh, for that and ultimately be sort of the best place to find and hire pros. Yeah, I see. And how did you start? Did you go out and raise VC or did you have an MVP? Like talk me through that. Yeah. So day one, it was just sort of the founders put in a little bit of money to get going. And yeah, I think the bigger thing is that we, we, we opted to do this and committed to it and went full time on it. Sort of two of us beginning in August of 2008. And at first it was all about just building something, you know, creating sort of a, as you said, an MVP that we could start learning with, but also sort of prove to investors that, you know, we were capable because we didn't have a track record. And so we knew we had to show something for ourselves. So that's what we did year one. And then uh, year, you know, in like summer of 09, we raised from friends and family. And, you know, what I would highlight about that is uh, friends and family are ultimately investing in sort of people they believe in. Um, you know, the concepts got to resonate, but more than anything, they, they have to sort of know and like and believe in that person. And so uh, you go talk to people who know you and have worked with you and believe in you and you raise a little bit of money there. And then that gave us the runway to continue to build out, you know, the first version of the marketplace and really begin to drive growth. And then we raised from professional angels uh, in the summer of 2010. Um, and yeah, don't know where exactly you want to go deep on that, but uh, that's the early timeline. Yeah, I'd love to go a bit deeper. So tell us around how you got your first uh, user and then your first, well, the two-sided, that you got two sides. So can you tell us how you got users on both sides, your first users on both sides of the marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so early on, uh, we realized that, <clears throat> you know, you have to get the start, you have to get the marketplace started on one side. And for us, uh, and what is typical when you go study marketplaces, uh, we study, we went after the supply side first, the pros in our case. And, you know, these are folks who are motivated uh, to meet more customers, earn more money and grow their businesses because that's, uh, you know, what they're focused on day in and day out. And what we sort of realized we needed to do was to entice them on at first, to have something that was valuable, sort of inherently, not sort of something that uh, was predicated on us having customers, because the truth is we didn't. And um, we called it building network independent value for them. And the first version of that for us was a tool to repost your Thumbtack profile onto Craigslist and you know publish a much more professional looking ad and have pictures and import reviews <clears throat> and also have a sense of identity because um, uh, classified posts were ephemeral, right? They sort of expired every few days. And so this was um, the first thing we built to entice pros. And then, you know, we went after pros who we thought would be interested in that and, you know, actively worked to bring them on to the platform. 
you know, SMB marketing different than, you know, consumer marketing is the contact sport. You know, you got to find them, go to them, convince them. Um, and that's how we got the supply side. And then uh, what we came to appreciate was because these pros were using Thumbtack as a tool to sort of market themselves, they were really investing in the quality of these profiles. And we had by far the best content for this sector of small business on the internet. And that was then bringing a lot of uh, Google organic search traffic our way, simply because of the content that we now had. <clears throat> and that then sort of became the flywheel that we put together because uh, these pros came, uh, built out their profiles. They could then publish those in other places, get customers, but then that content brought customers to us directly. And at a certain point we could say, hey, you don't have to worry about publishing your profile elsewhere. You know, we now have the customers that you're looking for. And then from there, we could attract pros on the basis of having customers for them. But um, yeah, it's a uh, marketplaces, especially in their early days, really have to manufacture that growth. It has to be sort of engineered and, and uh, really deliberate. Um, and yeah, we spent all of our early years focused on that. You, you've said before that it took about three years to really find product market fit, like the perfect product market fit. Um, can you talk us through those early challenges of engineering the growth? Yeah. <clears throat> and so I think the tension that you have early on is like you need customers to learn, uh, but you need a great product to sort of attract and retain customers. So like how do you sort of balance the growth work and the experience work and sort of perennial challenge in building um, products? And, you know, for us, uh, what we really had to clue in on was <clears throat> what's broken in this market or in this experience or in this industry that uh, we are going to sort of attack and go fix. And, you know, when you first start thinking about it, there's lots of parts that <clears throat> are annoying about hiring pros. There's discovery and matchmaking. Then there's the sort of contracting, scheduling, paying, lots of pain points across all that. And at first, we didn't know which one of those was sort of the most important. Um, it took sort of building a product, early versions of product, seeing what people used and what sort of feedback we got from them to really appreciate that the most broken thing in our industry was this sort of, uh, sort of matchmaking or discovery process. Like I wanna hire, who can I hire in this moment for this job, in this location, at this price, and help me just discover who is out there. Um, and that took, you know, a year, 18 months to really hone in on of, of building and, and talking to customers. <clears throat> and then once you, we came to that appreciation, we could really sort of hone all of our efforts on solving that issue sort of best or in the best way possible. Once you honed that in, that's when you started to go to like traditional angels or VCs? Yeah. So I'd say um, if the first year uh, our friends and family bet on us um, and the sort of prototype that we had put up in our early learnings, these professional angels bet on us because we had sort of cracked the, the growth engine on the supply side. You know, the number one question you get as a marketplace early on is like, you know, how are you going to get liquidity going? How are you going to solve the chicken and the egg problem? And, you know, through this uh, tool that we'd built and this network that we'd started to build, I think we'd credibly answer that. And so I think then what those angels were betting on was great. Can they leverage that to be, you know, a really great product experience that ultimately you know, does find product market fit and, and sort of grow from there. Um, and that's why they, 
get the return and reward that they do because they bet very early, right? Uh, there's still a lot of risk. They invest literally pre-product market fit. So how much have you raised in total capital thus far? Basically half a billion dollars. Yeah, wow. And can you tell us about like the challenges around that that journey? Or as or did you find the more and more traction you got as time went on, the easier it was to raise money? No, don't let anybody ever tell you it's easy. Um, it's always hard. But I think it does change. And I think the best way to explain it is the ratio of dream to data goes from being very dream heavy early on to very data heavy later on. Because at first there's nothing. And so it really is the dream and the vision and the team that's bringing that to life. Because hey, truthfully, there's not much else. Um, and then in the later stages, yes, of course, they still want to understand the vision and sort of see who the team is that's leading this effort. But they also just want to see the spreadsheet and see the data and understand sort of numerically what's happening and through that gain confidence about the future. And uh, um, yeah, I think that is both telling the dream and telling the data part are, are different uh, challenges, but still challenges. So it's never easy, uh, but investors are sort of looking for different things at different stages, yeah. So what advice would you give to anyone looking to raise capital if you could, if you could right now? Like any deal that you're doing, you've got to understand what the other side is looking for. You know, I think people make the mistake of not internalizing what investors are optimizing for, how they're thinking. And in many cases, the fact that investors that you're talking to are thinking about what investors in the next round are going to be thinking about to see if you understand the journey that you're on and the bridge that you need to cross uh, and to also sort of have confidence that you can navigate that path successfully. So, yeah, I think having empathy for the other side, understanding what they're solving for and why, and then through that, you know, telling a powerful story. And I think these things are narratives. <clears throat> you know, we are creatures uh, who love a good story. And I think that is really critical when you're communicating something and engaging sort of investors about a, an opportunity. Uh, but then ultimately, at the end of the day, it is the quality of the business too. And you can't get around the fact that you need to be growing fast and growing efficiently and, um, yeah, all those sort of more hard numbery type of things. So you've raised uh, half a billion dollars from, you know, tier one, tier one investors, Sequoia, Tiger Global, et cetera. I'm curious, like, as a founder, how much of your time is spent on raising versus working on the business versus working with your leadership team? I'm just curious, what would you say that split would be? It's pretty little raising money. <clears throat> like in acute moments, it can be kind of all consuming, right? If you're running a process and talking to two or three investors a day and you have follow-ups and you're preparing materials for that, you know, that can be a all-in type of moment. Um, but that's happening rarely. And so in aggregate, less than 10% of the time, probably, uh, maybe less, less than 5% of the time. Um, and so the vast majority of the time is spent, you know, with the team, the leadership team and, you know, working the problem and, and working to bring this dream to life and, and make things better. Yeah, I see. And when it comes to kind of like the stage that you guys are at, do you think it's critical or even a couple of stages before 
um, once you get to your series, even A, do you think PR is a critical component to kind of get that inbound? Like obviously you need to focus on products. You talked about the data and the spreadsheet, but like what about PR? Do you think that's a critical component to bring quality investors to give yourself options to have people chasing you guys? Or I'm curious to hear your take there on PR and, and the, I guess the the job to be done on the PR side and how it relates to raising capital? I'm inclined to think of uh, PR in terms of the, you know, brand it can help build and through that, the sort of growth that it can have for the consumer product, um, for the, the business itself, more than as a way to drive a successful investment process. And, um, you know, one thing about investors, like they're happy to chat. You know they're 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 always down to have a coffee or to learn more about your business because they're soliciting inbound offers like professionally. That's what they do, and so typically, like having the conversation is not hard. And um, certainly, you need to have crossed some chasm in either having the network directly or people in your network that can connect you there. Uh, but once you can get introed, like you'll get the meeting. Um, the much harder part is getting these people to get excited about the business over and above all the other businesses that they're seeing. And for that, I think PR is not going to get you very far. <clears throat> it is much more about the substance. Um, but I do think PR is sort of critical and vital and, and um, yeah, incredible for driving brand and sort of customer growth. And when it comes to kind of like raising capital versus bootstrapping What's your take there? Like you've raised a considerable amount of money. Um, yeah, I'd just love to hear your take. Yeah, I mean, first off, there's no right answer. Um, there's no one way to do this. And I think it's really important to capitalize a business, finance a business in light of what you're trying to achieve and the objectives that you have. And, you know, I think the vast majority of businesses should not raise venture capital and aren't organized around raising venture capital. And I think that's great. And that is something to, um, yeah, recognize and, and sort of support. And I think of the businesses on Thumbtack, right? Think of a local plumber, um, you know, carpenter, folks like that, who are maybe even building a, a medium-sized company. They're not raising venture capital. Uh, they're financing their business either through sort of private investors, maybe bank loans, receivables. And so there's lots of smart ways to do that. And then, you know, venture is appropriate when you're building something that, has really high fixed costs, where the sort of entry costs to build the product, to market the product, to get it to sort of operating scale um, is very significant. It's not just a service business where as soon as you have your tools, maybe a truck, you're ready to go. It may take years of R&D and sort of years of um, investment to sort of realize, you know, any uh, revenue, let alone profit. And that's when venture is typically very appropriate. And those types of businesses um, are different. And, you know, I, yeah, I think we over uh, focus on venture back business. Um, yes, they turn out to be the biggest, like they're the companies that often go public. But in terms of, uh, you know, the typical business that's out there, that's not a venture back company. And that's still great. And there's still uh, smart ways to, to finance that and to finance that successfully. You said something interesting about a lot of businesses aren't typically organized in a way for VC. 
Um, are you able to elaborate on that more, what you meant by that? Like they're not organized in a way for its appropriate? I would say like less organized. I, I think, you know, obviously VCs really only invest in, invest in sort of C-Corps and not L limited partnerships or LLCs. So there's truly some like legal and structural things. But the, the point I was trying to make was more around like uh, the type of business that's being created and what does the founder want? What are they trying to achieve? Is it sort of uh, sort of cash income, sort of dividend that gets kicked out every year based off of operating profits? Is it the equity value appreciating? Um, and those are the types of decisions or uh, types of businesses that have to think about whether to raise VC or not. And you kind of have to be like shooting the moon a little bit uh, to, to raise, to be in the right position to raise VC money. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success you should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. When it comes to scale, I'm curious, um, how quickly did your team scale? Because you've raised a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, I'd say slowly and then quickly. Um, you know, if you think about us at first, um, we were two people the first year. Uh, then after we raised a bit of uh, friends and family, we got up to four or five people. Uh, we raised our angel round, um, got up to maybe 10. And that now takes you, that's like three years. So for the first three years, while we were you know, really trying to figure this out and, and get to sort of um, early product market fizz, very small team, uh, working super intensely. And um, then after we raised our Series A in, in January of 2012, you started to see the team ramp up more and become, you know, first dozens of people in 2012. And then once we raised our first growth round in 2013, um, start to get even more significant. And we probably hit 100 people in 2014, I would guess. Um, and now we're 1,000 people. And so... Uh, there's been some very high growth years, some slower growth years, but yeah, here we are. And at what point during that journey did you become consciously aware of culture? I think early on, and look, I'd never worked at a startup before. I'd never you know, worked in a business before, so I didn't really have much context, but uh, I didn't think of culture early on. You know, I thought of uh, our customers or lack thereof or what we were trying to do for them and how well we were accomplishing that. And, you know, I think looking back, that culture early on is very emergent and it's emergent out of the 
sort of shared values that leads to the self-selection uh, of these people coming together. Because, you know, the, the people that you bring on early on, it's not like we are identifying exactly who we want and, and pulling them in. We didn't have that kind of clout. It was also the people who were attracted to us. And then you get to know and you get to realize like that you are both passionate about building something like this and, and to sort of go for it. And so you don't really know or it's not obvious to you at first like what it is about us as this group of four, five, six, eight people um, that brought us together. And uh, it probably wasn't until like 2013 where we started to hire at more scale and the founders couldn't be part of sort of all um, interviews or at all stages. And people started to ask, okay, great. So how should we think about, you know, fit and values fit and culture fit? And how should we, what should we be looking for? Um, and that then obviously prompted the question of like, well, what are our values? And that first sort of values defining exercise, I think was really about looking inwards and trying to assess what was this sort of shared value system that this early team had um, created and, and sort of like come together around. Um, and, you know, from there, I think culture then becomes a bit more of an engineered uh, effort and sort of something that becomes more deliberate because once you have these values, then you can start to arc architect more of your sort of people philosophies and, and people programs around that. And then you also start to learn about, hey, actually, you know what, we need to, to evolve some of these values at a certain point because the needs of the business are changing or, you know, we want to lean into a different strength. And so then you also start thinking about values as kind of being the best version of yourself, not simply reflecting who you are. Um, and that came later. Uh, we did that exercise in, uh, we finished it in 2020, January, 2020, rolled that out. Uh, and then obviously COVID happened. Uh, but, um, that's how we've gone about sort of thinking about culture and, and, and really thinking about values. Mm, interesting. And can you tell us like um, thousand people now, uh, you know, you've, you guys have pivoted to a fully remote workplace. Um, what logistically did that look like? And can you talk us through some of those challenges? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> you know, remote work at first was forced onto us. Um, uh, COVID happened, uh, I believe it was March 13th, 2020. We told people, uh, we're going home. And yeah, I think many of us, myself included, thought months, right? That was my kind of mental model. Um, and obviously two years later, um, we basically never went back. Um, and so I'll admit that I was a remote work or virtual work skeptic uh, going into all this you know I thought you had to like go to work to work and that it was, there was really sort of magic power in coming together in the office and something we'd invested a lot in um, and so I was really surprised um, honestly at how much better uh, certain things were in a virtual sort of environment and the two things that really stood out were first off the efficiency went up. We were more productive. You know, meetings are planned more deliberately. More of the implicit is made explicit. Um, it forces you to be deliberate about process and communication in a way that just makes your organization better. 
Um, and, you know, finding ways that make your whole organization more productive is uh, rare. Uh, those don't come up very often. So sort of incredibly noteworthy when, when, it, when you're sort of witnessing it. Um, secondly, and probably much more surprising, um, was how much more equitable the, the workplace felt. You know, I think we underappreciate how much sort of embedded power dynamic exists in physical space, right? Like who's got the corner office, who's in HQ versus sort of the satellite office, uh, who gets flown to the meeting or is in the room. Um, and these things are sort of unavoidable. And I, I'd argue any company that has like multiple floors or multiple offices, uh, uh, multiple sites, like is dealing with those kind of issues. And we certainly did. And people remarked uh, very broadly um, after, you know, a couple of quarters of working remotely, like, wow, like, I've never felt sort of so integrated uh, that our team has never felt so sort of unified that there aren't sort of like primary and secondary players. Um, and I think that's really a reflection of the environment being fundamentally more equitable, right? We're all the same little box. Uh, it forces a more um, respectful conversation, uh, especially group conversation. So that was all amazing. And then you couple that with obviously the, the ability to access talent much more fundamentally um, or much more geographically broadly. And it's really compelling. Um, now, the reality is it's not uh, better in every way. And team cohesion and connection is certainly worse in a remote culture. You know, the, the downside of it being more transactional is that it's less, uh, yeah, it, it engenders less connection. Um, and so the way that, you know, we want to solve for that is by actively, you know, investing in that through events and offsites that we bring people together uh, sort of quarterly um, and really like produce and, and make them like um, powerful moments of connection building, community building. And through that, uh, kind of get the best of both worlds uh, where we can get the cohesion that comes from coming together and being in, in person for a few days but the flexibility and sort of efficiency and equity that comes from working um, remotely. Have you guys now basically canceled leases on your offices and that's it? Well, interestingly, we are creating um, new offices. Uh, we're calling them libraries. And the idea with these is the reality that um, remote work is all the things I just described to you, but not all people have a convenient place to work from um, or to work from always. And so there is still the need uh, for some uh, to have a place to work uh, that's quiet, uh, that they can count on, that they can be productive in. And so uh, like a library, uh, we're going to offer that for people uh, and a place that they can drop in, you know, whenever uh, throughout the week uh, to work. Um, and also this library will serve as a community hub, a place for colleagues to sort of convene at, you know, you can imagine a softball team, an intramural team sort of uh, meeting up there, a book club, a game night, um, a speaker, uh, basically a place for people to come together and convene. Uh, but what it won't be is a place where teams do teamwork. So it won't have any conference rooms. It'll just have um, sort of individual sort of Zoom rooms that you can get in. Uh, but no sort of team conference rooms because when teams gather, they gather online. Uh, they gather virtually. Yeah, that's really cool. How many of those are you creating? 
was starting with one uh, in San Francisco. Uh, and uh, the Bay Area is still the place where we have the highest concentration of employees. Um, and then we'll go from there. Um, and I'm excited to learn. It'll open this summer. And I'm excited to learn how people use it and what that means for the future libraries that we will build. But yeah, the plan is to build them in other sort of um, places where we have a lot of employees and where we expect to hire a lot more employees. I see. And how many, how many people could work from there at any given time? The one that uh, is opening up in San Francisco will have space for about uh, 130, 140 people. Yeah, wow. That's really cool. Really interesting concept. Um, so can you talk to us about kind of uh, 360 reviews uh, and the idea behind sharing them company-wide? Yeah, I mean, so this happened a long time ago now um, and really started from this sort of appreciation of the power of feedback and the recognition that you needed to create a culture that was open to feedback, where feedback was celebrated and appreciated. And there was kind of no shame in admitting that you had, you know, problem areas or things that you wanted to work on. You know, we've not surprisingly um, hired a bunch of really type A people. We, we are likely very type A people ourselves, and they don't like anything less than an A. And so, you know, getting into this startup world where you're kind of constantly failing, um, you know, you're always not doing as well as you want for your customers. Your organization is always not sort of as, yeah, complete as you want it to be and as sort of, uh, you know, effective as you want it to be. So you're always kind of thinking of what's sort of next or what could be better. And sharing feedback just turned out to be a really great way to engender this comfort with issues and failure and, and wanting to be better. Um, and yeah, we actually literally did it today. Uh, so we're still doing this and the whole leadership team shared out uh, their 360s today at our sort of global all hands, which we call all thumbs. And um, yeah, went through sort of what's on the list for people and uh, what they're working on. And um, I think it's so powerful. Uh, for the company to hear um, even the most senior leaders uh, talk about what they're working on and how they're working to get better and how they appreciate the feedback that their you know peers and reports gave them and they took it to heart, they internalized it and here's what they're doing. Um, and we've all got those things. Uh, so it feels um, powerful to share it and to make it comfortable for people. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Would you be able to share kind of an area of focus and development for yourself right now? Always. Um, so, uh, you know, what I talked about today was an appreciation I got, we call them love it, uh, was as sort of the steward of our culture. Um, and, you know, to the conversation we were having earlier about our changing nature of work, that we've gone virtual, we have these new events, we're opening up these new offices called libraries. Um, I'm really pushing myself and calling it out to the company that ensuring that our culture and our values is only strengthened by all these changes and, and this sort of evolution in how we work is something that's really important to me um, because uh, I think uh, there is a risk that you lose things in this, in this moment of transition and I would hate that. And on the flip side, it's also an opportunity to kind of be an even better version of ourselves. Um, and so a lot of my time is going towards that and thinking about that and working on it with a bunch of other people. Um, and then, you know, another uh, sort of call out uh, 
and this is one of my sort of could be better, so the things I'm working on, um, was really around the process of uh, creating alignment around sort of new ideas. Um, and, you know, I think as when we were smaller, um, this is something that could almost happen more organically, right? Could happen in one-on-ones uh, with my reports or in small groups. And then, you know, the conversation would sort of like uh, blossom from there. But as we've gotten bigger and um, things don't always, and I think this is probably part of virtual work as well, um, don't always cascade organically um, as well as they should, I need to be more deliberate about that. I need to be more uh, sort of proactive about sort of the process of communicating and ultimately aligning around sort of new ideas or, or sort of important ideas that are evolving um, and not rely on sort of just one-on-one -on -one conversations to get it there. Um, and that's something that, um, yeah, I'll reflect on. Uh, I've already started to sort of make a few tweaks to how we run our, our leadership forums. Um, but it's really powerful to hear that because, you know, that's not obvious to me uh, that that is something that's a gap. And by addressing this gap, I'll make the company better. And um, yeah, that motivates me. Yeah. So taking people on a journey. Mm -hmm. Okay. Look, I'm conscious of your time, Marco. A couple last questions and we'll look to work, uh, wrap up. Great resignation. It's been a, been a big thing. Uh, what are you guys doing to maintain and, and re retain? What are you guys doing to retain talent? Yeah, and look, uh, see, thankfully our retention and engagement numbers are um, doing great right now. And so what I think that's uh, about is, you know, really having purposeful work, um, have, having work that matters, um, working with great people, um, and feeling utilized, uh, feeling sort of um, that your talent and your hard work is making an impact and driving things forward and, and sort of, um, yeah, leaving its mark on the world. And I feel like uh, we really offer that to people. It's a great moment and I'm excited uh, to grow the company significantly. We hope to add you know, over 500 people this year and um, yeah, have 100 plus open roles. So encourage people to check it out and apply if you see a great role for yourself. Awesome. Um, okay, so we're gonna move to the hot seat round. I've got uh, three questions for you, just uh, yeah, fire away. Um, if you could travel back to your first day in business, what's one piece of advice you would give to a younger Marco? Focus more. Um, you know, I think only um, by going through it and sort of really learning about your customer and really learning about the, their needs and how best to serve them, do you realize that your early efforts were not truly focused on the thing that sort of matters most? And so um, sharpen, focus, uh, uh, take fewer, bigger bets early on. Um, and uh, I think we would have made even faster progress. Um, we ultimately got to the right answer, but um, yeah, I think we uh, could always have focused more. When is work fulfilling? So today um, we got to share the list of people who got promoted to sort of director and above. And I think it's incredibly fulfilling to be able to 
work uh, with these incredible leaders uh, who are making such a big impact on the business and for our customers and also sort of inspiring those around them uh, and sort of growing others um, in and like working with great humans uh, on hard problems is just really fulfilling. And I get to work with a lot of great humans uh, and that makes my, my days great. Uh, last question, and this is my favorite. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I'm not sure. I, I have thought about the question more broadly, and I would love to get dinner with John von Neumann, uh, who was, you know, a 20th century polymath uh, and uh, was known as a bon vivant, someone who loved to um, eat and tell stories and party and uh, seemed like the best conversationalist uh, you could ever ask for. So that's the name that comes to mind. I know he's not your entrepreneur. He did invent the computer, though. Uh, so uh, and, and, and game theory and so much. Um, so that would be the top of my list in terms of entrepreneurs. You know, I never met Steve jobs. Um, obviously I've watched a bunch of his speeches and, um, read, uh, about him, but, um, yeah, I would, I would love to have met him and love to have sort of just had the time to yeah, see him up, up close. And, uh, yeah, that's what comes to mind. Well, look, we'll wrap there, Marco. Thank you so much for your time. It's a great interview. It's going to help a lot of founders and uh, really appreciate your openness and honesty. All right, Nathan. Thanks so much. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.